0: washed-up emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA. A happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com This is the first one of hopefully many. Uh, my name is Tom Mullen. Um, I run washedupemo.com, um, which has been a blog I've done for five years or so. And uh, as my co-host, Mr. Raymond Harkins is here as well.
1: Uh, welcome, Tom. This is a uh, fun endeavor, and I'm very excited to be doing it with you and seeing what else we can accomplish with this this fun endeavor.
0: Yeah, I feel like... You know, I think there'll be people out
1: there. I know that you guys are listening right now,
0: but don't worry. Plenty of your friends will be on board next week and the following week. um, We have a lot of, I think, really interesting interesting things to chat about and guests from the email post-hardcore scene and sort of the history. And hopefully through these episodes we can kind of give a breath of um, where these bands came from, what their knowledge was, where they are today, and sort of hopefully, if you're a new listener – of to this kind of genre music you can kind of tell the past and
1: um you know that's kind of uh you know uh where i'd like to see this thing go yeah i think it's uh i'm i myself am a avid podcast listener and i know you you dabble in it as well and i just think it's uh it's cool because I've never personally listened to a podcast that has dedicated itself to a genre of music you know you have like alternative press has a podcast where they interview artists and stuff like that and uh, it's not going to be unlike what we do but um, you know it obviously focuses in, on such a wide breadth of music um, and so I think just this is cool because this is a genre of music that a lot of people you know hold very dear to their hearts uh, and yeah, I just think it's cool that, you know, we have the ability to kind of explore that with the people who, you know, helped build it from the ground up.
0: Yeah, and I it's been funny to feel people that have responded on washedupemo.com with comments or they've come up to me at shows or the DJ night that we're doing once a month in New York City. It, it, it it's funny everyone has this really personal connection to it and they want to express it and I think a lot of these bands enough time has passed where they're okay to chat about it and what's interesting is we're in a great position Ray and I where we're able to we've dealt with a lot of these bands previously or through other bands and so the lineup of guests that we have coming I think is uh um people are going to be really really excited about and obviously I don't want to speak before we get them but definitely the cream of the crop will will be on board to to chat
1: yeah definitely what how about you uh Tom, you can walk through kind of, you know, your own history of within the, uh, not only, you know, kind of where you discovered emo, but like what you've done, you know, professionally and how connected you've been with music for a long time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's funny. I, was going to punk rock
0: shows in Vermont and hardcore shows. And I had never seen like a major label band or a, I didn't have access to the bands that came on MTV and, you know, seeing Nirvana and those kind of things. They never came to Vermont. I never got to see them. And I only saw punk rock, hardcore, those type of bands. And that's what I got into. And I feel like from the hardcore scene, um, kind of delved into post-hardcore. And when I got into college, um, thank God. Uh, I went to school at this like small college in North Carolina, and um a friend brought me to see Bad Religion, and it was like the biggest show I'd seen. Uh, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I bought an
1: extra large shirt because back then that's all they had. that's that's all that's all you wore. I, I, you did. I was actually having a discussion with a friend the other day about this because I'm so pissed because I feel like my parents served me wrong. You were in college when you were buying these extra large shirts, right? Yes, okay. I was in high school when I was, uh, because I was raised in a more, um, a place where that had a lot of shows, like Southern California, Orange County. Um, You know, we had a lot of shows, so I got into it, you you know, going to shows when I was like 16, 17, and I was so pissed, because all of my shirts are extra large, and I'm like, why did no one tell me that these shirts did not fit me? (laughs) But I mean, like you said, a lot of these bands never even made shirts that were smaller than larges, so...
0: No, and that's that's what you bought. I remember. I mean, that bad religion shirt. I can't believe I wore that, um, but I did. Uh, and I think from that, um, it was really funny. The the radio station. I went up there, and I felt like I had a lot of records, and I had the like hardcore show down, and I could I pitched to have the specialty show, and I got it. And I remember going to the music director's office, and there was a box of CDs, and I went in there, and I said, Hey, man, how's it going? And he, there was a box of CDs and vinyl. And I go, what's this? And he goes, oh, it's my giveaway bin. This was like the holy grail of emo. <laughs> there was uh, mineral stuff. There was mineral CDs, mint vinyl, um, Jimmy World. One of their vi- – I forget the name of it. But it's the one that they actually duct taped themselves. That was in there. Wow. Um, just this treasure trove of – It was like, okay, I I mean, I was into it, but seeing these, I had never had access to it because the record stores near me didn't have them, and mail order was kind of, It just, these things weren't as easy to get to or listen to. So I literally, I asked him again, I go, this is the giveaway bin? And he's like, yeah, yeah, go. Okay. And I went home, and that was the start of like me listening to this genre and sort of getting into it and going to shows and kind of progressed into getting into the music industry and working at labels and having my own little career musically but it's I mean it
1: literally started from that box of supposedly giveaway CDs that that's amazing that it was such a such a physical manifestation of like starting something you know (laughs) it's like this box was your Pandora's box I
0: mean it had everything in there it had had first promise ring record it had vitreous humor um I think it had. What else did it have in there? A lot of crank stuff. I mean, the, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I know this music director well. I still talk to him. His name's Mike. He was huge into ska, so obviously, <laughs> this would be nowhere near his 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 realm. And. There was some hardcore stuff in there. It, just, it was really funny. A lot of those records in there are the re- the first people I spoke to in the music industry that helped me sort of get a job. So I, this box, I mean, I literally remember looking at it and, and taking it and bringing it back to my dorm room, and that was it. So anyway, long story short, um, always uh, check your giveaway bin at the radio station. There might be a new genre.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I love that um my introduction to this genre was definitely through you know similar steps as you as far as you know i got into the whole you know fat records epitaph scene when i was in like seventh and eighth grade um i remember i distinctly remember getting into the descendants when i was in eighth grade by watching the movie pump up the volume um and only reason being because they had a funny song in there they had the Schnitzel song in there and i was like <gasps> Oh dude! these guys sound funny, and for whatever reason, I was like super into any like musical humor, like I was super into jerky boys, and so it's like if there was a funny thing that had to do with you know music in any way shape or form, I'd probably be into it, but anyway, so got into that, then that progressed into heavier stuff, you know your your typical victory record stuff, uh you know your strife earth crisis mention that yep, yeah the, it... the victory magazine. Uh, was a joke slash that's where you got your records. Oh, it was incredible. I ordered every Christmas holiday. Um, my mom basically was like, what do you want? And I was like, I want everything from here. And like, I s- We did the same thing. That's the same thing I did. <laughs> it, I'm, you're going to find out, people, that
0: Ray and I are the same people. We just live 3,000 miles away. <laughs> so good. My parents gave me, they were like, what do you want? I said, give me $100, and I'll just buy whatever I can at the
1: Victory site. Dude, it was that, that and it was it was so funny opening those presents in front of like you know my grandparents where it was like oh cool here's a shirt with bulldogs all over it like okay <laughs> cool firestorm sweet <laughs> exactly but um, so yeah then through that and it, I don't think I was adverse to listening to music that was softer Um, but I definitely I, I distinctly remember going through a phase of like I don't really want to listen to anything that's like not aggressive you know um and so and then I, I just remember buying because um, I, I just you know worshipped at the altar of victory records and because I that label had such a large reach as far as their musical genres I started to get into different stuff that they were putting out like I got really into guilt for a while um and so I think that started to open my musical palette a little bit but then about um, oh, the donuts right yeah Or Hi-Fi and the Road Burners. (laughs) Huge. Huge influence on my life. (laughs) And then the, uh... I distinctly remember buying the Revelation Records in-flight sampler. Um... I mean, that was like five bucks at your local record store. And I just bought it because I was like, oh, you know, there's like... I like Gorilla Biscuits and I like some of these bands. Um... And that's when, obviously, the label sampler was still, you know, a very viable option for discovering new music. And then, um... The Texas is the reason song, back into the left. That's where I was like, that is my touchstone of getting me into music that wasn't screaming. <laughs> no, definitely. And yeah, then, that, that yeah, it was huge. I mean, that that
0: the far side track on there, the, the Shades Apart song, totally. It was like that mold of pop, like really catchy tunes, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't top forty.
1: Yeah, and I felt like. It, I felt like it held enough um, I guess for lack of a better term aggression even though it was not aggressive by any means but um, you know it was obviously tuneful and they just were able to kinda combine everything that I was looking for at that time musically and then like once I started to peel away those layers of of Revelation catalog that's when you know you got in like all those bands you mentioned you know Game Face, Sensefield, anything that originated from Rev and then from there that's when you know when emo started to hit, as far as you know, your get up, <laughs> totally, your and your get up kids and promise ring, like, because this was like about ninety, I think that comp came out in ninety seven, um, and so like right around then is when everything started to happen on a more national level for that music. But yeah, that's that's exactly how I kind of peeled away layers for for emo. I was resistant at first, but then definitely came around.
0: Yeah, it it, it the I think the. Like those record labels, like the Caulfield Records, the and um, the Initial Records. Um, what's the one that the Get Up Kids are on? Why am I forgetting? Doghouse. Doghouse. Um, you know that those all those guys were there and putting out these records, and it was so. It was still so word of mouth. Um, you had to go to the show. You had to buy the record. It, it definitely made it, you know, like a conquest or like a search versus. Let me just, you know, media fire everything and I have the entire discography in five minutes.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I I think everybody can wax nostalgic about um, whatever musical genre they get into being more pure than it is in its current state. But it definitely had this. uh, I think everything was so unintentional with this scene where it was just kind of like everything kind of led to one another. and it just you know everyone kind of tripped onto bands and you know those bands started other bands and i don't know it just seemed um very different than the way that you know like it's like punk and hardcore scenes kind of started to spread um mm-hmm. because it seems like those bands really kind of um you know they were bored suburban kids that kind of had a purpose whereas the i don't know a lot of the bands that started like they kind of just wanted to uh have an outlet for their emotions as opposed to, you know, pushing a political agenda or whatever. Yeah, no, I think, I think all those
0: things are, it's so funny that I always make fun of, you know, West Coast and East Coast, and it's just, we came to that same point, just kind of through different labels, but it all, it traveled to the same spot. So I find that really interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's, and that's obviously the reason that we, you know, wanted to come together in a the same digital room and obviously shed light to this subject. And I, I just wanted to give a little
0: background, just washed up emo. Um, I know it has a funny connotation, but I started it in 07, 2007, just to kind of get out my aggression of this scene sort of falling. Um, and no offense to, you know, the Fallout Boy dudes. I know the drummer's like into really good bands and I'm sure that it's just – the, the connotation of it got put to the mainstream and it really was hard and with goth and people thinking that cutting and suicide were part of this. And it really came from an indie sort of post hardcore rock, um, realm and just about the music. And so that's where it started. And it's kind of progressed and I've had a bunch of different, um, Uh, phases in it and uh, been in the last couple years and kind of sparked this podcast too was talking about these newer bands that are coming up that are sort of hearkening from that day not using Ray's last name but uh, (laughs) talking about the old sort of in referencing those bands and it's just it's really nice to hear that it meant enough where it's lasted and 10 years have gone by where it's people have I mean there's still I mean, I still get reviews I see of like My Chem and it just says emo, or that's just going to happen because the word is just, it's sort of out there. I just think that if there's a, a forum to kind of chat and talk about these newer bands who are, they'll rather reference those older bands than newer bands. Just a great opportunity to um, help those guys out too.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, th- so I that's, mean, it-
0: that's why I do the site. I do it for fun, I do have a real job. Um, but right now, that is just what I've been doing for fun. So we'll just add this to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I've i known Tom. We first ran across each other in about 2007 um, just through some mutual friends. And then, um, you know, within within an hour of meeting one another, we definitely were like, oh, dude, you get it. All right. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, because, you know, you run across those people. It's like, okay, we've had similar experiences um, from Completely different walks of life as far as you know where we were raised and you know our backgrounds or whatever, but we had such similar experiences, and everything that we said, it's like we could fill each other's musical sentences, uh, you know, within, like I said, an hour of meeting each other. So,
0: very well, very well said, that's exactly it. I think, I think, I think my girlfriend walked away or something at one point, like she was so annoyed.
1: She She, she 100% was, she was like. Oh God, you guys are just going to be, you guys are just going to totally bro down all night. And it's like, yep, yes, yes, we are. See ya. (laughs) I know if we were, if we were a male and a female, we definitely would be, um, you know, immediately asking each other back to each other's apartments Yes. and playing each other mixtapes.
0: Oh my God. Vinyl. Um, I actually, in college, there was a, a friend that is in a bunch of bands, um, but at the time, and he would visit his girlfriend, and she lived it down, a few doors down from me. He would literally come and drive into the apartment complex and not go to her house, but go to my house first. Because <laughs> I had the records. So good. So he'd be like, what's coming out? What's the latest? And I'd tell – And it just she would get so mad. She's like, you drove five hours, and you're not even hanging out with me. And he's like, but Tom's got the records. So <laughs> It's funny. Well, we got to ha- we got to know where our priorities land sometimes. Exactly. We need to know what's next. So um would you want to uh we can intro the first guest, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, no, I think so. You uh you you know him better than I, Tom, so yes. you can intro him.
0: Yes, I will. Uh his uh the first guest we have um for the podcast is Chuck Daly. Um he spoke with us recently um and it was basically uh, he was one of the first uh, sort of people that I met at an emo label, was Deep Elm, and he did press um, for Deep Elm for a while, and we uh, used to hang out at festivals and shows, and got to be really good friends. And now he runs Bear Trap PR, uh, working with a lot of great bands, and he runs a little label on the side um, called Tiny Engines, and uh, really insightful um, about uh, a lot of things from that time period, and uh, it was. Uh, it's great to have him on. Chuck, thanks for being on the Wash Up Emo podcast. Uh, we met, what, 96, I believe? No,
2: no, no. <clears throat> um, I didn't start working at Deep Elm until maybe, God, it was 2000 or 2001, so not, not quite that early.
0: But I got camber in the mail when I first got there. But so you weren't even there yet. I didn't get. um, Yeah, I mean, I graduated
2: college in 98 and then probably didn't start working at Deep Elm until almost two years later. So, yeah, I guess it was probably 2000. Um, I was not there at the beginning uh, when when John was in New York. I I moved down to Charlotte a couple months after he had moved down here. So
0: that's that's a long time ago. It's it's still like ten years. Yeah, I guess you're right. It is still a long time ago.
1: You just you just fucked up the timeline, dude.
0: <laughs> it's you know what's fine about that is that I'm old and I'm <laughs> deaf, so that's fine. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think you know the one of the first records. I mean, from you know Deep Elm was Camber, which I know you're a huge fan of, um, and all the Mac Rocks that we did, and you were doing a bunch of stuff with Deep Elm, and then the band I was in in college or in New York ended up being on an Emo Diaries comp, yep. um, then you jumped ship and you did Bear Trap and Tiny Engines. So you kind of kept yeah. it real. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, go through some of that stuff. I think the first one would be, um, you know, some of those first bands yeah. that you kind of dug, uh, growing up that you think kind of helped get you into it and kind of how that came into Deep Elm.
2: Um, well, I mean, as far as a Deep Elm angle, uh, that, that Camber record, Beautiful Charade, was, was the first thing I ever got from the label, and that definitely helped open my eyes up to, you know, to what John was doing at the time, and, you know, the fact that I even landed a job at Deep Elm was just because I was a fan of the label and just happened to be, to be uh, browsing the website and saw that he was hiring, and it was just sort of a, you know, like I said, I had just graduated college, and I'm sort of looking, I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was, I just sent the resume on a, on a whim. Um, but you know, in terms of growing up, uh, you know, I came from like a pretty small town in Western Maryland. So there wasn't like a ton of shows or, you know, I didn't really have any access to, to, you know, underground or punk music. So it wasn't like I came from any scene like that. Um, in college, I definitely started getting into, to, to punk more. You know, I worked at the the radio station and, um, one of my roommates was really into bad religion. So that sort of kicked it off there. Um, but in terms of the whole emo thing, it's funny because, uh, it was braid's frame and canvas, but I discovered it because alternative press had published an article, I think it was called the new hardcore. Wow. And, and braid was one of the the bands that was featured. And it was, you know, it was it was mostly emo bands, but they were calling it the new hardcore, so I had no clue, you know. And that's, that's, Braids Frame and Canvas definitely kind of kicked it off. And then, you know, like, I used to, do you remember that website? It's definitely not around anymore, but it was called Rocket Fuel, and they covered a lot of that, that genre in the early days. Um, I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was... <laughs> There weren't there weren't very many out there it was like you know rocket fuel um i think action attack helicopter was one of them mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean none of them are around anymore
1: splendid you guys remember splendid dude you're blowing my mind i literally have never heard of any of these yeah this is <laughs> see
0: this is why you're on <laughs> well this is my job for a lot
2: of years i mean you know starting out at deep Elm was just you know covering all the media stuff so i i you know, I'd visit these websites all the time. But even before that, that was again, I wasn't living in a place with a scene or anything like that, or even a good college radio station. Um, so you know, it was the internet that I kind of got my my information from.
1: I just I just relied on the Revelation Revelation Records message board. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> me, and
0: then Victory Records Victory Records message board. I know that sounds really cheesy, but that had a lot of stuff on there. Yeah. So. Do, do, the,
2: do those message boards go back that far? Because I don't really remember message boards until, I mean, not, not that long ago.
1: Message boards for, like, well, for Revelation, I didn't really vi- visit the Victory one, but Revelation, like, that started around, I want to say, between 94 and 96. Because, like, I, not only was I getting, like, show information from, like, local You know, because they actually had, I remember they had a show listing. They had a map of the United States. That was a
0: huge site. Like, if you got on that, I feel like your show did better.
1: Totally. (laughs) And so it's like they had that show listing, and then they also had the message board where obviously people talked about whatever they wanted. Um, And I just remember it was like such a hub because I could book shows for my band. I could find out about new music. And it was like, that was the first Site that I remember in my own mind, where it was like I found out about news, but all those other sites you're listing was just like, I they just didn't pop up on my radar. But obviously, since it was your job, it better yeah, have po- better those, have popped up.
2: <laughs> those are more sites that would, you know, they 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 review bands and you know interview bands. So for me, for that, it was just me trying to uh, discover new stuff that I would never heard of before. And you know what I just thought of uh, when you brought up Revelation. One of the other ways I sort of got more into the scene was. I would, uh, you know, I would do mail order through no idea because they had the, you know, the, the the magazine catalog things, and you know it was back then when you'd, you know, you'd physically, you'd get the, the magazine and send in cash, and, you know, there was no really there was no email about it or, ordering online it was all, it was all <laughs> done that way, but you know the magazines I can't remember if they had like articles and stuff in it too.
1: Yeah, they know? did. They definitely did. Yeah,
2: that's what I thought. But then like in the in the mail order district uh, the mail order section there was always like a little description
1: next to each item
2: you know just like one sentence and I, you know back then i took a chance on a lot of a lot of stuff and some of it was crap but some of it was was pretty awesome you know some of it i still have now and listen to so yeah,
1: i i love that you hit on that because i distinctly remember myself looking at descriptions from various catalog, like, you know, whatever the initial, initial records catalog. I just the catalog. Yeah. Very, uh, oh, very,
2: know. yeah, very, I forgot about that.
1: Those ones were amazing because you felt like when you read that description, you were just like, I better fucking like this. I'm ordering it. And it was just so like, uh, yeah, I just, re- Faith. yeah, I remember how intimate it was to feel like, all right, I ordered that record and it's coming to me and I'm really taking a chance on it.
2: Yeah. There's such a great nostalgia with that, you know, I mean, obviously things are easier now, and it's so you know you find new bands with the click of a mouse, and you can listen to them, and you most of them have their entire record streaming. But there's something really cool about that whole not knowing what the hell you're gonna get, and just the anticipation, and but also
0: listening to the whole record. I I, I have such a hard time now with. You know, you you know, Ray sends me a band, or you send me the record, and I get you know through six tracks, and ah, oh, something happens, or some, it's like back then, it's like you put the record on in your room and you sat there, mm-hmm. and it's like it was like a, it's not religious, but it was like you took that 45 minutes, and I mean, it's funny, I put on records sometimes, and you know, it, it'll be on shuffle and it'll play you know the 11th track of an album. I know every word. And yes, there's other records that that happens to, but I don't. I think that time frame there wasn't any distraction.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why a lot of people are are getting into vinyl again because there's. I think there's a disconnect with the whole digital side of things. Which again, don't get me wrong. It's very convenient, especially in you know doing what I do. Um, but you know, there's there's something. I, I, you know, I think you said there's something a little bit more intimate about stuff like that. So. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I started getting back into vinyl big time was just, I don't know. It was, it was more of an en- engaging, I don't know. It it was just a better experience for
0: me. Yeah. <clears throat> so. And then, you know, some of the, you know, when you were there, you know, at, at Deep Elm and working those records and, I mean, did you feel something? I mean, I, we'll get into the Emo Diary <laughs> stuff, but did you like feel like, wow, like this is something that's, Catching on or did it I mean I remember those I mean some of those years people I mean it, you were chastised if you said emo <laughs> or, yeah.
1: or, or did you or did you show up to work crying that's a better oh, question yeah,
2: we, I did <laughs> I, had, I had to you know every day there was a go cry in the corner session and we wrote poetry um, No, I mean, John definitely caught flack to the emo diary stuff, and you know in in one sense, we were always trying to expand. And not not expand too much, but you know, if you look at some of the later catalog where we, you know, we're on stuff like Ladderman and um, I don't know, Red Animal War, some some of the more punk punk bands we were working with. Um, I don't know, emo is just the stuff that that both John and I really liked at the time, and we didn't we didn't push it that much, except for the emo diaries. Uh, I don't know. We tried not to think about it too much. It was just, I I, I mean. You know, people say stuff about John, but I definitely learned a lot. I mean, pretty much everything I know, and it was a great experience. And I loved probably like 90 percent of the band. So, you know, it was it it was always fun and it was always it was hard work. I mean, we worked like 11, 12 hours a day. And I I don't think I had like a serious vacation for five years. But, you know, we we did it because we loved it. And we always felt like we were kind of on the verge of something big. And there was years where, you know, where we had like Branson and Appleseed Cast and Plains Mistaken for Stars. And that was kind of before file sharing had really, you know, you didn't really hear too much about it. And it's not like we were selling a ton of records, but we were selling enough records that we could afford to fund, you know, these smaller bands that we really liked. And, you know, we didn't really have, we didn't necessarily, we weren't worried about money at the time. And then... From there, it just sort of—I—I I don't know what the, what the, what, at what point exactly it was, but it just started to get worse and worse. I mean, at least in terms of record sales, it was just hard to, to maintain the, la- the label at the the pace we were doing. So,
1: so would you would you say that you were working there? Because you said you started around two thousand, right? Yes. Um, so would you say that that like moment, whatever the 2000, 2001 frame, that was like the heyday for Deep Elm and also how many, like how many people ended up working there at any given time? Cause the impression that I always had about Deep Elm was like, dude, maybe one or two people working on it at a time. I didn't get the sense that it was like this, uh, I guess this. It, well, I use the word empire, but obviously, obviously, that means a different thing to independent music. But um, so, yeah, was that? Do you feel that was the heyday? And then, like, how you know, what did the the staff look like there?
2: The, well, you're you're right about the staff. It was, okay, it, I was there for like seven and a half, seven and a half eight years, and you know, for that time, it was always John and I. And then I don't think we ever we had one other full time employee uh will miller who actually does bear trap and tiny engines with me now so we've uh obviously kept in touch and will was there for maybe i don't want to say definitely but like maybe two years two and a half three years something like that and he did most of the mail order stuff uh but other than that it was just john and i and maybe an occasional intern Although those those never really seemed to work out
1: very well, well and yeah you guys were in north carolina so it wasn't like yeah. Los Angeles or New York, where you have kids tripping over each other to intern at record labels,
2: yeah, we had one girl, Sarah, who was here for for a decent amount of time and i you know I think if and but that was towards the end where you know i I think we would have hired her, but uh you know we just couldn't afford it, but as far as the you know the heyday of deep elm um I mean it was definitely good when I first got there, I think maybe. You know when the uh, Appleseed Cast's "Low Level Owl" came out, that was that was a big record for us, and I think that was maybe you can call it the pinnacle of Deep Elm. I don't know. Um, and,
1: <laughs> to your
2: like, and I'm not saying it went down in terms of quality. I mean, it, and that you know we 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 worked with Ladderman, which was a pretty big release for us. Just just things weren't selling as much. You know, if if you know if we sold <clears throat> whatever uh, two thousand copies of Ladderman and in 2005, I don't, I don't even know when it was, 2006, 2007, you know, I, I rewind maybe five years, and I think we could have, you know, we could have sold twice that, and it was just a climate of, like, I don't want to blame it all on file sharing, but, you know, there was a lot of indie record stores that were closing their doors, the whole distro situation was just sort of crap. Um,
1: yeah. The music, the music landscape was changing and the you, it
2: was, it was, and I don't, you know, I think John always, he really hated file sharing and I don't, he never really tried to figure out ways to embrace it. Although now I, you know, he, once I left, he sort of took a break for about a year and now he's, everything he's putting out is mostly digital and he's focusing a lot on, uh, licensing for movies and television. Um, so in that respect, Deep Elm was all digital now, which is funny if you think about it. But um,
1: <laughs> he, took that, he took that year off to be like, all right, it's about time I guess I do all this.
2: Yeah. Well, he took the year off because I think he was just burnt out and kind of figured that it wasn't, you know, the, at the, the way that Deep Elm was progressing. He just couldn't keep it alive. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I ended up leaving. You know, be- before that, I sort of saw the writing on the wall. And just in general, I kind of wanted to start my own thing um but i i saw the way deepum was going and i was just like i better think about this and you know so it was it was it was totally fine when i left and i think john was he he you know it kind of took some of the pressure off of him you know he didn't have to worry about what i was going to do
1: yeah what um good what do you think the uh, cuz i i uh, anytime anyone works at a label and for you know an extended amount of time i'm always curious about the um uh, what do you what do you pinpoint as far as being i guess the, the biggest selling release while you were there uh not even so much maybe number wise but maybe like exposure or whatever the case may be i know you referenced Appleseed seed cast but um
2: yeah i mean i think Appleseed seed cast has always been deep Elm's biggest band um but you know ladderman i mean ladderman's I think continues to get big because those guys are all playing in bands that are pretty popular right now. Like Phil is in Iron Sheik. Um, and Pat is doing bridge and tunnel and Matt is in what's Matt's band reviver. Yeah. Um, so the legend of ladderman continues to grow, but I don't even think John's Yeah. Pre- I don't even know if he's pressing any records. I know no idea is doing the vinyl version of a bunch of that, that, those releases. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, but when when I was there, in terms of our, our biggest seller it was it was Appleseed Cast. And it's funny too, it, you know, if there's any band people listening, um, it was just in terms of sales, the biggest sellers were always the bands that toured the most. And Appleseed Cast toured the most. And then, you know, behind them were maybe Planes Mistaken for Stars and Branson for a while was was a decent seller. And Latterman toured a bit too, so um, I don't know. I just, you can you can do well if you get out on the road and you connect. You know, you
0: connect with the fans. Sh- Shocking. Shocking. Yeah, I mean it's not. <laughs> well, it, that's kind of a funny point. Uh, it's like I deal with a lot of that stuff where, you know, they're wondering why this band isn't selling and all this. It's like they got to go on the road for three years. They don't know yeah. who they are, uh, and it's like you have to do that sort of, you know, push.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, I I deal with the same thing at, at Bear Trap, where I'm like, I, I tell the bands, I mean, I can I can push your record to press, and I can talk about it, and you know, I, I can only harass people so much, and at some point, you guys have to do something because it. I mean, number one, if you do, you know, if you tour or or at least if you're keeping busy, you know, releasing new material or you know making a video or doing something, it gives me something to talk about, and in general press people want to hear about bands that are active they don't want to hear about your you know your band that plays a weekend show locally once every you know four weeks or whatever it's just it's just kind of no matter how good your band is or how awesome your record is you know you got to do something to to be successful
0: with it you know you can't just sit around so. Were, were there any, you know, I know there's a bunch of favorites from those eras. I mean, I loved Cross My Heart, um, obviously Drive Till Morning, uh, Slow Ride, Star Market. I still listen to Were there any others that kind of didn't get the love that you totally dug? Oh, um, uh,
2: I always loved Red, Red Animal War. But mm-hmm. I think, I mean, there's people who, who like them. I mean, I don't. Who who's to say if one band should be should be big? I don't know. I, but I love Red Red Animal War. I always like Settlefish, who are from Italy, and it's always kind of hard to get a overseas band to catch on in the U.S. So that might be one. Um, I don't know, man. There was a lot of stuff that that, like I said, I, I really loved most of the records we put out. And-
0: Benton Falls, which I got a request for uh, on Thursday Benton <laughs> on emo Falls- night.
2: Ben, Ben Falls was a band that kind of just like blew up on their own without, I mean, they did a couple tours and then eventually they, they broke up pretty quickly, but that was a band, you know, somehow was just one of those rare instances where people just caught onto their music and talked about them and, and, and people still love that band today. And, and, and that label count your lucky stars, um, who's run by Keith, who's in the band empire, empire, mm-hmm. uh, he, I'm pretty sure he released a vinyl version of both "Guilt Beats Hate" and "Fighting Starlight." So yeah, he that, did. Yeah, that's a band that has persisted despite breaking up pretty early and not really doing much touring. So, but yeah, great band. "Fighting Starlight," I, 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 that's one one of my favorite Deep Elm records. Definitely. Yeah, I
0: think if you look at my last FM, I think they're like the Benton Falls is like one of the. I think the least top 10 bands for me over the years which yeah it's kind of crazy to think about I was like look, look, looking at that yesterday and I was like wow I mean I know I played the record a lot but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting to
2: look at your last FM stats to see what's see what you're actually listening to.
0: Yeah, the I mean some of the some of those other bands you're I mean you're totally right. I mean with the touring and you know the bands actually trying to get out there I mean that kind of brings up I mean the emo diaries thing. I mean I mean the quick story. I mean I know I sent you the re- the band I was in. You guys sent me a contract. Um, I was and I literally I mean I think I read half of it <laughs> and signed it, sent it back. I didn't give a shit. I was gonna be on emo diaries. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, is there any sort of I mean was that the same thing with most bands? Um, I was definitely naive, um, and I loved that it helped us while we were still around. And I, I mean, guys in that band are now in Robbers on High Street um, and kind of melded into that. What, was that sort of the, the, the same thinking for most of these bands? Or, I almost see it as the minor leagues, because you could kind of like pick out the bands that sort of got out of it, maybe sign them to a record and have them tour. Just kinda, I felt like it was kind of the minor leagues of emo.
2: Yeah, well, you know, in terms of the contract, there really wasn't much to it, so, you know. I know there wasn't. I'm just, I'm that thing. I, mean, I, I, I think the only thing about the contract was that, you know, the the song on the, the, whatever Emo Diaries you were on was, it was supposed to be exclusive to that for, I mean, I think it was maybe only two years or something, or I don't know, it might have been like It might have been longer than that, but that was part of the appeal of the Emo Diaries. One of the the things that made it popular was that you could only get those songs from the Emo Diaries. So, And then, I mean, that, that was pretty much it as far as the contract. I think the band's got, you know, like 30 or 60 copies of the record or something to sell.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I think, it, I, think I, actually, I actually I think it was a box. I think I got like hundred yeah. or something, and was able to use them at shows. No, it was great. It was great promo. I just I was just laughing because I just remember being like, I don't even care what this says. <laughs> like, I want yeah. the emo diaries.
1: You, I need I need to interrupt because I need to reference the fact that I had no idea that you were in a band that played and you got on. Which emo diaries were you on, Tom? Seven. And what was the name of your band?
0: Halifax Code.
1: Okay, don't, don't fucking keep that shit from our listeners, dude. God.
2: Look it up, man. There's a lot of information on the web.
1: <laughs> no, I, I just – it's one of those things like you, your friends your friends keep certain things from you, and then they just like drop it on you at random times, and it's like, yo, really? Why are you keeping that?
2: But
0: actually there's really no information on the Halifax code on the web. There's, if you want to look up stuff about robbers on High Street, there's a lot of stuff. But for us – I mean it's funny. It's how I met. Francis Garcia uh, from Drive Till Morning, who I still keep in touch with and has a studio. And it's just it was kind of funny because he actually reached out to me on email from that because he's like, hey, you're in New York. We should do a show. Um, And we ended up doing shows together, working together. And he actually this is another thing, Ray, you might not know. I recorded a solo record in (laughs) New York.
1: Oh, my God. Again, Francis,
0: Francis recorded the solo record.
1: Blowing my mind left and right.
0: <laughs> what, what was it called? Turn the knife or something. Turn the knife. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's pretty emotional.
0: I was. I, look, uh, this is the reason I'm doing this.
2: <laughs> I may. I may have that record somewhere. I don't know if you actually sent me a physical <sighs> promo,
0: but it's possible. It's in a box somewhere. I Not. It's on SoundCloud, and it's funny how many people play it, and like some foreign country person will say, "Hey, I heard your record." I'm like, "Wow." Yeah.
1: Wow. That's I... awesome. amazing. I am going to do some research on you after we're off our, our show. Dude, why was there never an Emo Diaries tour? That's
2: a great question. Have, because it would have been a pain in the ass to do, I guess.
1: <laughs> True, uh, logistically.
2: Yeah, we did a Deep Elm tour. It was the, uh, that Suicide Prevention Awareness Tour. And I think it was Branson, Red Animal War, Desert City Soundtrack. Oh, there's another band I really love, Desert City Soundtrack. Um, uh, God, I can't remember now. There was like five bands, five or six bands, and it was just sort of a disaster. And it was really—I mean, we spent like months and months promoting it and doing. And John booked the tour, and it
1: was—it
2: was the most stressful thing ever. And then the turnout at the shows were just not that great. And I mean, I think tickets were ten bucks. I don't know. It was. Yeah,
1: it's it's hard to do that.
2: that's then that was one of the things that made me say I will never ever 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 book a tour ever. So I I the people who are booking agents, I mean God bless them. I would <laughs> I I tell people that I tell booking agents that I was like I I hate your job. But um yeah. So that's why there was no emo diary store probably.
1: Yeah. The um uh, before cuz I know Tom has a few other questions about the emo diary stuff, but um rather than ending on uh a, a note that might not be positive because I know there was obviously a lot of uh, controversy you know a lot of bands spoke out about appearing on Emo Diaries you know after they've signed the contract and after they did everything with you guys you know on the up and up uh, and then you know whatever once this was more so like from you know the earlier uh, the, whatever volumes one through five maybe um, and granted I have no idea how well they sold as it continued but some bands obviously spoke out and were like hey, we don't appreciate the fact that, you know, you guys have sold a lot. And I use that word in air quotes because this is not a video podcast Um, (laughs) that, uh, you know, you've sold a lot of comps and we don't get anything in return from that. And, you know, some people started to there was definitely a backlash against Deep Elm um, and kind of spiking from the Emo Diaries. Like, you know, what was your experience with that stuff? If you feel comfortable talking about it, of course.
2: No, I mean. That's fine. I, I don't really remember that many people being too upset, but it's possible that they were upset with John, and I just didn't really know about it.
1: Oh, uh, that could yeah, that could very well be the case where it's like and I mean,
2: and it's be, you know if we're talking about the early stuff, it was probably before a time where I even really like I said I'd never used to do message boards, so but I don't you know like I said the band's got free copies, um, free copies of records, and I, I and I. I would assume I'm not positive, but I, I would think if there was represses, they would continue to get free copies. I'm, I'm, I think that was part of the deal. Sure. And, and like I said before, I think it also, it was after a certain amount of time, the bands were allowed to do whatever they wanted with the song. Like they could put it on something else, which I think is, you know, the Jimmy Eat world song that was on the first, first, uh, emo diaries eventually ended up coming out on something else. I believe, um, so, I don't know i mean i I really don't remember that sort of backlash. I mean the backlash I remember was just you know people hating the emo Diaries because it was called the emo Diaries right, yeah
1: no and that and that that could have been all like tied up together, and you know when I use the word backlash, it definitely wasn't like the independent music scene was up in arms, <laughs> but the, I, just, I just remember, like, at partially just because I think people like us in the digital room are hypersensitive to everything that's happening. So it's like, you know, you see one post on a message board and you're just like, oh, my God, there's a beef. There's something that exists there. Um,
2: if I, um,
1: maybe if I actually pulled
2: out the Emo Diaries and looked at the bands, maybe I'd remember something. The only, the only, like, serious beef I ever remember, and it was before I got to Deep Elm, was with the Sam I Am song. Cause they ended up putting that song on something else, and John was like, "Well, you can't do that yet. You know, it's you know you're s- still under contract." And I think he ended up suing them. And I think I I mean, I think he probably won. I don't even know what happened with that. Like I said, oh. it was before I got there.
1: Oh wow, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, that was the only. That was the only time I ever really remember. And like I said, I wasn't even there yet. But uh, you know, John told me about it. Obviously.
1: Yeah, like hey, hey, like hey, we need to watch out for those Sam I Am guys. They're gonna beat the crap out of us. No, she's kidding. <laughs>
2: yeah, right. Um, but you know, I mean, that and that was also before a time where you know it was before iTunes, so there wasn't. I don't know if there was. There probably wasn't any like royalties or anything from sales. But we didn't get any. You know, it's not like we got digital sales either from that. I mean, um, and I have no idea what the sales numbers on the emo diaries were.
1: You know, yeah, they
2: did pretty well. I don't think they were like. I, I I will say that you know John John told me that the emo diaries you know when that first chapter came out that kind of saved the label because before that he was you know he's releasing some good stuff but the label was sort of faltering and he didn't know what to do and you know he wasn't even real sure that he wanted to name it the emo diaries but he, he you know he went ahead and and did it and. You know, enough people liked it and enough people hated it that were, you know, that talked about it, that, you know, made it relevant. And he said that definitely kept the label going. So that's kind of like
0: a cool little nugget you might not have known. Yeah. I mean, the the bands on the first one is amazing. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy World, Sam A.M., Jejun, Camber, Lazy Kane, which I have another random story. Uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, just great, great bands.
1: Yeah. And that's back when the days where, uh, obviously, like, label samplers, because essentially, I mean, even though it wasn't a label sampler, it was a sampler. That's so what, you learned about bands. Yeah, I mean, that was, like, the best discovery tool you possibly could have, because it's, like, in my formative music years, uh, you know, Victory Style One, Victory Records put out a... Oh, yeah. co- that was incredible. Like, Revelation Records put out that in-flight compilation for their 50th release, and it's, like, those... Those were tent poles for kids to, you know, mobilize around whatever bands appeared on that. And so I could I could easily see why Deep Elm could have been, like you said, saved because they put out this, like, here's a doorway to this musical genre that you might have only had, like, a topical knowledge of.
2: Yeah. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, um, the Emo Diaries were basically just a way for us to help out bands that, you know, we we thought that were really cool and had had some good you know some good songs or good music, but obviously you know when you're when you're a small label and not that not that Deep Elm was the smallest label, but we were you know we weren't at the level of some we we're never at the level of Revelation or Jade Tree or Discord or anything like that. We were a moderately successful indie label, um, but you know at the end of the day, it was just a way to give these bands a chance stuff that we thought was cool and that deserved to be heard you know we put it out on on the emo diaries and there was really there's really no criteria like we we never said oh you have to be emo you know you have to have that quote unquote emo sound to be on this this compilation we just we just really put stuff on that we liked and if you look you know especially in like the latter chapters um there's a lot of different sounding stuff on on those you know it's not the typical emo sound and that was you know obviously you know we sold copies of the emo diaries and like i said it, you know it helped keep the label relevant and 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 afloat i mean i don't know if it really i mean in terms of sales i don't know if it contributed that much but it like i said it kept the label relevant but at the end of the day you know it was just it was something we enjoyed doing and we we liked giving these these young bands a a voice where they you know they might might not have been heard before and like tom said it was almost like you know a little like the minor leagues where if you got a chance to to have a song in the emo diaries that might propel you on to something else, or at least people might be talking about you a little bit more than before. So
0: I, I, I think, that's, I think completely that's completely true.
2: true. Yeah, well good.
0: <laughs> well it's I mean, like the I mean the further seems forever. It's hilarious. If you see chapter four, it says X Strong Arm, which I think is hilarious. Because who who writes X Strong Arm anymore? But at that, that time that's what it was. Yeah. Um the movie life's on there. it just it's kind of fun. You can look at all of them and pick out like wow, that band did it! Like it, it. I don't think. I don't know. I was like trying to think of, you know, other compilations of at the time almost unknowns, or maybe there's a couple on there, but there's always one that kind of pops out that that stays, and I think that's a really testament to the selection process and and finding good good songs.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was definitely some. You know, there was there was chapters that I like more than others, but there was always there was always good stuff in all the all the chapters, at least in my opinion. I mean, um, and it's it it, funny you brought up this further seems forever. I was just totally forgot they were even on one of the Emo Diaries. But, you know, Deep Elm was, like, originally supposed to work with those guys, and I don't know what the story was. I mean, John told me it was like the drummer was a dick, and there was some sort of, So, you know, it never worked out. But, yeah, I mean, it is crazy to see some of the bands that actually did end up you know, doing well on their own. So
1: what, um, cause uh, I, w- I wasn't, I'm not aware of the selection process that you guys used in order to kind of weed stuff out with that. Was it basically just people sent in stuff and then, you know, you kind of just pick, you know, you guys collectively picked it from there or did you guys already have like, Hey, these are 10 bands that like, you know, we just randomly ran across that we like, but we don't want to sign, you know, like how did that process go?
2: Um, uh maybe a little of both um, i mean we always had an open submission process both for the emo diaries and for deep elm so i mean a lot of it was just people sending in stuff send, sending in demos in general and and we'd listen to everything and you know usually uh, you know the first pass if we thought it you know if we if we thought it showed promise or we wanted to listen more you know, we'd put it in, into one pile and obviously there's a lot of stuff that was just, you know, crap that you would throw away. Um, and then, you know, the, out of the good stuff, you'd listen to it again. And maybe there was maybe there was some stuff that was really good, but you didn't quite like it enough to to want to put it out. But for those bands, you're like, hey, we could put this, you know, maybe they want to put a song on the Emo Diaries because it is, you know, it is really good. And, you know, it, it. You know, maybe there's like one song that really stood out. Um and then you know from those from those demos you know occasionally there was a band that we just really really liked and maybe we'd kind of keep that and maybe it would end up actually being you know part of the roster but it was I mean it was no like it was it was simple as that you know send in music and you know we'll consider it for number 1 emo diaries and obviously we'll consider it for you know if we like it enough maybe we'll put out the record
0: I personally shit my pants when I got that car. The call that you said you want to be on it. So, <laughs> see, it's like the it was like your highlight moment in when you were I don't know how old you were, but I mean I, that was like I was just moved to New York. I had this band like it just it was that thing you needed. You it, the, it was funny the band was on two compilations, and those things were the reason that we got to play shows met other bands, uh, that was, I mean, it's funny that the, the compilation was the, you know, Spotify playlist or whatever the, you know, iTunes feature, that was the best way to get your name out there. Yeah. Wait, so when you sent,
2: sent us music, was it a full length or did you just send like a bunch of songs?
0: I sent two songs.
2: Yeah. See, I mean, we, we get stuff like all, that all the time. I mean, sometimes bands would send full records you know, wanting to get signed to Deep Elm, And sometimes they would just send a song or two, you know, whether or not they they wanted to, to do something on the Emo Diaries, or maybe they were just kind of making us aware of, you know, hey, we're out there, you should pay attention to us. But, anyway, I mean, it was all sorts of different different things. I, I mean, there was no digital, I mean, there was no digital submission at the time, which is, you know, interesting to, to remember a time when there wasn't any of that stuff. Because now yeah. it's, you know, it's probably like, for all labels, it's probably like all digital submission. I mean, who wants to get, you know, who wants a stack of fifty promos
0: that are just laying around? But um, I know Equal Vision still gets promos every day.
2: <laughs> is Equal Vision still doing stuff? I can't remember the last time I. What are they? What are they releasing these days?
0: Uh, it's fine. My girlfriend still works there, which is hilarious. Um, yeah. So I'm still connected. They they did the We Came as Romans record. Isley. They're putting out the new Say Anything. Um, I Really? Yep. Uh, What else? Dude, I feel like, just not to get on too much of a tangent, I feel
2: like there's like big labels like Equal Vision and Victory, who I don't know if they just figure that they're, you know, maybe they have like a big enough fan base where you don't really see like reviews or much press coverage on those labels anymore. Like I was just thinking about Victory the other day, like what the hell are they doing now? But they're still around. I mean, they're still releasing stuff. Ray, so. what's the
0: big band? Is it A Day to Remember? Isn't that their band? On Victory? It's, it's a. I think it's A Day to Remember. I, I mean, mean that's, I think that's keeping the lights. I mean, it's, I think it's for them. It's, it's, when I well, was there, it was a band. I mean, just backstory. I mean, I worked at Equal Vision for three years. I feel like you had this tentpole band, and then you were able to kind of bring up other bands, and it wasn't like every band was popular, but you just had one band kind of carry it and help bring everybody else up and tours and all that stuff.
2: And you know what? I mean, I'm sure equal vision and victory are doing still doing quite well based on their back catalog too, which, you know, a label, you know, labels that have been around forever and have such a rich, you know, a rich history of, you know, releasing pop. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say popular records, but you know, records that kids really connect with, uh, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just, you know, Tony Brummel by himself, you know, reaping the benefits of his back catalog. I don't know, and occasionally releasing one or two new records. I, I don't know. It's just.
0: I know well, that. Uh, I mean, with EVR, a lot of the big thing is their merch company too. Um, uh, oh. They have they have a huge merch thing. Um, it's unbelievable. I, um, I've gone back there a couple times just to go to the office and hang, and just they keep adding. More labels that they do merch for, more tours that they do merch for. It's just, you know, the 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 adage, you know, you, you can't download a T-shirt. Yeah, um, that definitely was um, a big deal, and it just, um, it's a, it's 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 actually a really really cool story. I, I give Steve, a, the guy that owns it, is a huge credit for, um, you know, taking it and and trusting people um, and kind of expanding it. So, but yeah, it. it Going back to you know the sort of the Deep Elm, I mean, I feel like those bands popped out, and either you knew them from that, or you saw the tour, and you did sort of some research on them, and you found out they were on a comp or they were on the label. It just every, it, I felt every a lot of those bands in that and that time frame kind of you you came back to Deep Elm, and that's how you started searching. That's how you started buying. Like you guys said, you know, you buy records on a whim. Yeah. And yeah, You sort of yeah. trust the label. You trust. I mean, there there is a fan base of EVR. There's a fan base of Rev. There's a fan base of Century Media. There's a fan base of Deep Elm. I feel like definitely yeah. during those years.
2: I, I I mean, and I think that's a good point. That you know, any label, any independent label that that becomes moderately successful is usually you know it's based on the fact that their fan base, like you said, they trust what they released. And and there's lots of kids who just continue you know no matter what they put out they'll continue to buy you know to buy most of it which is great you know i mean that's if you're a label that's at least these days that's one of the that's how you can survive i mean and not even i mean and coming from tiny engines perspective we're we're, you Mm -hmm. know we're pretty much we're just a hobby and our goal is you know our goal is only to you know break even or maybe make a little money to be self-sustaining where we can just continue to put, you know, record sales into future, future records. So, but, you know, we, you know, I'm not, we don't have like a ton of mail order customers. We, we do all right, but there's definitely a lot of kids who, who buy multiple, multiple releases from us. And that's, that's definitely great to have, to know, to know that we have like a, a small, but a solid, uh fan base who 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 supports us like that. And then you know like there's you know like you said Equal Vision just really branching out and trying other things. You know, it's it's a tough world for labels out there now. I mean, it's especially considering that bands can do a lot of the stuff on their own and
1: you you basically as a label, you basically have like two choices, one to either obviously just like, you know, kill any whatever brand identity you have and be able to you know, like you said, expand your horizon, signs, different, sign, different bands that don't sound like what you've done before, or you can kind of do, you know, um, whatever, like no idea. Like there's, there's not many labels that have that sort of, Oh, it comes out on this. So it must be good anymore. (laughs) Cause it's like, you know, obviously like we're referencing like the mid to late nineties, you could trust certain labels where it's like, dude, whatever they're putting out, I will probably like, and I will definitely buy. But now it's like, you know, it's such a, Labels such as yourself, you know, Tiny Engines, it's like you guys have the ability to do that because, you know, you're not relying on this as your main source of income where it's like, hey, we can release bands that fall under the same umbrella and you probably will like this if you like this.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And it was we never had any, you know, grand illusions that we were going to become a full time label. Yeah, working at Deep Elm taught me enough to know that it just wasn't possible and and not and I would, I don't even know if I'd ever really want to do that again. I mean it's, just, it's a lot of pressure to keep your label alive or you know just you're constantly trying to figure out you yeah. know new ways to sell records and to introduce kids to the music and get new kids on board and
1: you also have to you also have to figure out how much cocaine to buy too.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's totally That's one way to get it on the radio. <laughs> uh
2: but yeah, with tiny engines, it was just at the at the beginning. I, you know, Will and I, and then there's another guy, Jeff. We just kind of said, you know, we want this to be fun. We want it to succeed, and we want to continue to be able to release records. So obviously, there's some element that, you know, we need to sell stuff. But ultimately, you know, I just want the whole process to be fun. I want I want to work with bands that that we really love. Um, I want to spend a little bit of extra money on cool packaging. And, and cool vinyl colors, and you know I just don't and, and because it's a hobby, I don't necessarily have to worry about you know failing, although you know we we don't want we also don't want to put our own money into the label I mean we do, but it would be nice that we like i said if it could be self sustaining um so
1: you you uh, could, you, you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, put your kids' college education on tiny engines you exactly. can just my, spend my, it all
2: my my wife definitely does not want to do that either. She, I wish she was here because I could, I should have her talk about Tiny Engines and how much she loves it. Um, <laughs> every time I'm working on something Tiny Engines, she's like, "Why aren't you doing something that actually makes money?" Wow. Oh, okay.
0: Um, you know, uh, Chuck, I think right. just from Bear Trap, I mean, that kind of came out of your love of working some of the same bands, and it just, it's funny how that each of these things kind of comes out of loving the music and it ends up working.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, now we're finally expanding outside of the bear trap roster. But when we first started tiny engines, we were like, Oh, we don't want it to be just Well, I mean, obviously there were some bear trap bands that we really loved and we loved, you know, we wanted to work with them, but we, we said, you know, let's not make this a bear trap label. But I mean, that's, and that, but that's what it actually ended up being for like the first four or five releases. Um, and now we're now it's sort of see it's hard for me to say where the label is right now. Like I feel we're doing well. I mean, probably not well enough. Um, you know, we can't we can't just release anything we want to release, and we we still can't release you know more than four or five things a year. But you know, I I I like where we're heading, and I like the bands we're working with, and you know, it's it's most importantly it's it's been fun. Like I've really enjoyed the whole process of of making vinyl records, which I never, we, you know, we never did vinyl at Deep Elm. If we did do vinyl, it was always licensing it out to, to other labels. So I, you know, seven, eight years at Deep Elm and I had no clue about the whole process of making vinyl. So that's, it's been eye opening, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. So.
1: Does, does, uh, and bear, just so I'm correct in this, bear trap is like obviously your full-time gig and that's what you spend most of your time on.
2: Yeah, I mean, bear trap is my, quote unquote, paying
1: your bread, your bread and butter.
2: <laughs> um, and but I, I, I stay home with the kids. I have you know, two two little boys who are like three and a half and one and a half. Um, so I really don't get much bear trap stuff done during the day. Uh, so right now it's it's almost like bear trap's a part time job and you know being. Daddy daycare is my full time job so uh that in that respect it 's been it 's been interesting but I think once you know it's it 's at the point where i 'm definitely not lacking for any projects i mean i it, it's been good that we 've built up a solid a solid enough reputation where i mean bands find us i don 't have to go out and look for bands to work with and it 's you know mostly all word of mouth and referral from other bands we've worked with. And, and that's good, too, because it's usually, you know, there's a lot of really cool bands that contact us. And that's the number one, you know, my number one priority is to work music I like. I mean, I turn down a lot of stuff because I just I can't bring myself to work something just for a paycheck, you know, um, although maybe I should. <clears throat> but, yeah, I mean, right now, Bear Trap's, you know, full time minus the time I put in with the kids And then, you know, and then I've got, I've got bear trap and, or I mean, tiny engines and it's, it's definitely a full life. And I think, um, I don't know, we'll, we'll see when the kids are old enough to go to school full time, how it, how, how things progress. I mean, I I feel like I have, you know, I think we're doing well enough where, you know, I'll I'll never be rich, you know, I'll never, I'll, I'll probably never make any more than, you know, a, you know, the high school teacher, but you know I, at least i get to work from home and i get to do what i want and you know it's it's my own thing and it's it's definitely been fun so i i can't complain really
1: that's awesome yeah um and i know we tom and i kind of wanted to ask some more general questions in regards to you know connecting it back to the website and just kind of you know f- focusing it on uh, emo as it were as a genre Um, when, you know, for you, when did you first start to notice that emo obviously had shifted meanings and, you know, it started to become, uh, there was a lot of negative connotations that were attached to it.
2: Oh man. Um, I think there was, I mean, working at Deep Elm, I feel like there was always sort of a negative connotation with emo, um. It always seems like seemed like we were fighting that fight to make emo cool, and then all of a sudden, at some point, you know, you're getting bands like Dashboard Confessional and, um, I don't know, like some of the you know some of the bands that became really big and got and had some mainstream success, which is great. I mean, nothing. I don't want to take anything away from those from those bands, but they were being portrayed as emo, you know, like bands like Fall Out Boy. And and that wasn't necessarily the emo I was, you know, I, I would never call those bands emo, really. Um, Which is
0: the catalyst for the
2: washed up emo. Sorry. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was just weird. Like, okay, we're supposed to be this emo label, but we aren't really reaping the benefits of any of this stuff. Um, but, I, I mean, I don't think you really ever paid all that much attention to it. I think everybody else probably paid more attention to it than we did. And we just sort of... You know, we we went with it. we were like, well, you know, if people call us an emo label, that's fine. But we're gonna release stuff that we like, and if it's emo, that's cool. If it's you know, if it's something else, then that's just what we're gonna do. Um, and and then I, I don't know. It's in the past couple of we- years, it seemed like I mean, emo is obviously people. I mean, people use the term all the time who have no you know no clue what it where it came from. You know, it's just funny to hear it. You know, in in like a sitcom or you know, in reference to, like, some kid who cuts himself. Uh, I'm just like, what? what? Um, but now it's almost like there's bands that are bringing back that old-school emo sound, like like Algernon and, uh, you know, bands like that, and now it's almost like emo is cool again. Like the, like the underground emo that I like, that, you know, that, that I would associate with emo, it's almost like it's not made fun of now. And I don't, I don't know what happened, where the turning point was exactly.
0: I, I, I feel it was like two years ago, there started to be those bands. And they were saying, you know, I'm not referencing Fallout Boy. I'm referencing Mineral. I'm referencing yeah. Promise Ring. And so, there enough time had passed, I feel like, where these, these – they were older. And they, maybe they were younger, but they didn't like what they were supposed to at that time, what was pop, which was the bad emo. And then they sort of found those bands um, kind of organically. And it was just – it's funny. I mean, I remember there's this band Gates from New Jersey, which yeah. a friend sent me the record. I was blown away. I was like, is this 1998? Uh-huh. Um, but it sounded new, and it sounded like they they had a little magwai in it, and they just brought, like, a few other things to it. And um, it just really resonated that, holy crap, like, bands are – it, it, i was like it's finally coming around and it's and i think i don't know i think for me it's it was two years ago
1: that it, i felt like it was okay to say that word um well i i think passing. i think the uh, uh maybe not so much like i, I mean i agree with you 100 percent because obviously a lot of these bands you know bands like title fight balance and composure where it's like they reference all of those bands that we were speaking of but To me, it seems like it falls under the banner of post-hardcore. I mean, which obviously, at the end of the day, it doesn't fucking matter. It's good music. (laughs) But... The yeah, I mean, because I, I I personally don't see that word, um, you know, no band obviously uses that to describe themselves, um, or you know, you don't really see it in one sheets or anything like that. No, oh, you're right. <laughs>
0: Post hardcore is the new way to say it.
1: Yeah, no, that's like yeah, it's definitely the altered way of like, all right, we don't want to sound like little kids' music, um, even though realistically it's like. I think most people that would look at that word now would reference it towards obviously something bad. But who knows? Maybe the word, obviously, in like five years, you know, bands will start to embrace it more and be, you know, confident with that.
0: Can we think about post-hardcore the word for a second again? I'm like laughing to myself. I, whenever I thought of post-hardcore, it was the dudes in hardcore bands doing bands after. (laughs) That was post-hardcore to me. Like, yeah, quicksand was after. You know, he's a today. Okay, now that's what he's doing. That's post-hardcore. That's his band.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's like it's just it's so easy to lump that term on anything. That basically, it's like well, it's kind of aggressive, but they don't scream, so it's it's after hardcore. It's after. That's what it is.
2: And you know what? Now that you mentioned post-hardcore, I am recalling that uh, that was pretty much. I believe the word we use in all our bios to replace emo.
1: Amazing. Find
2: you know, <laughs> and replace. Yeah, it, and, and because I wrote most of the Deep Elm bios all that time. So you know, you, you'd always be. I, I remember at the beginning, first couple of years, you'd you, you'd be really cautious. You, you wouldn't want to mention the word emo in the bio. So it it would be it'd be post hardcore is what we'd use. And I think towards the end we started. You know, we were like, Wh- whatever, we'll just say emo. But um, that's totally true. We totally, those words were like interchangeable, even though, you know, do they really even mean the same thing? But post hardcore was like the tough way of saying emo.
0: Yeah. And like some of the bands, I mean, it's funny, the, the DJ night that we do once a month here, It's it says emo slash post hardcore. Cause if you just say emo, people are going to think one thing. But if you throw in post hardcore, be like, oh, okay, <laughs> they can play Taking Back Sunday for us, you know, or whatever. It's just like. Even it's though. Taking Back Sunday post hardcore? I'm just saying it just helps. I'm just saying people can at least feel more comfortable saying other bands. Yeah. Because sometimes if you just say email, they're like, all right, well, they're just going to play stuff that makes you want to cut yourself. Yeah.
2: Um, and see, but, you know, like I always thought of post hardcore. I mean, I see exactly what you're saying, but, you know, when, when I thought of the word post hardcore, I would actually think about bands like Quicksand mm-hmm. that were you know, they were based in hardcore, but then they were sort of had this, you know, emotional slant to them. And and that was still kind of cool. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't full out emo. It was like hardcore, but it was sort of sensitive too and and, and you know, it was it was okay to
0: to like that sort of music. Like it was okay to like quicksand. Um, I felt at the drive in kind of fell into that, but they were more angular, more the indie side. That they yeah. kind of went that that direction instead of straight ahead verse chorus verse breakdown chorus times two.
1: No, they're well, they're they're, they're post hardcore. Okay, just leave it at that. All right. <laughs> All right, Ray has spoken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm just I'm labeling everything. Guns N' Roses post hardcore.
0: That Axel or Skinny? Axle?
1: <laughs> That's true. Later, later, Guns N' Roses post hardcore. There you go. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Uh, I just was there. Any kind of fun memories from um, MacRock? I, I know MacRock was this uh, just for people. Those a conference that was the Mid Atlantic uh, conference of you know college radio stations from you know Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, and uh, I I remember I would that fest was a weekend run by WXJM in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and it was just. I would see bands there the year before uh they would play c m j or south by southwest i just it i felt it was like such an exciting few years and I know you got you guys were down there, and I would get to go down there for for work stuff. was there any kind of fun stuff you remember and i remember- i mean for me the first band I ever saw open the fest in i think it was ninety seven was the get up kids
2: uh-huh
0: they were the uh, first band on
2: yeah i it, i mean it was you know, it just I—I just popped in my head that I think I have a picture of you and I somewhere uh, in a in a pile of pictures at at the label expo. I should dig that up and scan. Yeah, it. Yeah, that'd be there. awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, Mac Rock was always—it—it it sort of got progressively worse for me. But the first couple years, the first year, I just had a, a total blast, and I ended up staying with a girl who went to uh, to James Madison, who was like a friend. He was I have like, a photo best, of her. best uh, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's that girl. Or Different I don't girl. know. Maybe it is. There was a
0: lot of girls, right? Let's just yeah. move on. Chuck, continue.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she was like a friend of my, the best friend of one of my brother's good friends who went to school in West Virginia. It was just so. It was just really random, and I was just like poor and needed a place to crash, and um. I mean, there was nothing like particularly notable about that night except we just you know, we hung out at a couple bars and just had like a really, really good time. And she was just like a really gracious host. And I think that, you know, I had a good time at all the shows and stuff, but I think that sort of added to the whole, the whole weekend that, you know, I could just meet this random person and just have like a really, you know, a solidly fun time. And then, you know, the next couple of years it was, you know, it was fun and I don't know, I don't know what it was, but the last, the last two years I went were, just weren't really doing it for me. I mean, I remember one of the last years I went up for Deep Elm when we we set up a booth at the label, uh, the label Expo. I mean, everybody was buying vinyl and we had no vinyl. And I think I sold like two CDs the whole time, um, which was just weird. But I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was because I was younger and just didn't really give a crap that I had such a great time. And then later on I was older and... Grumpier, but um oh I mean there's no there's no doubt there were some great memories. I mean nothing I never did anything like super crazy, but just in general the experience was always was always pretty good. And well, I, I think I know they're still doing it and I kinda I, I wish I could get back up there again, but it's I mean it's it's hard with kids now, you know. It's you can't just do those weekend getaway trips. So
1: well, I yeah, think that
0: I, I, I'll definitely look I... back on those 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 times with fondness. Yeah, I went to the tenure and it was, it was just, you know, you could just see it it moving to another way. And it just, it wasn't as organic. I mean, you, you stayed with people from campus. Like if you're in a band, you went up and you play or you stayed with them at their house. Um, and it's just, it was just kind of that sort of community um, aspect of it that I, that I, that I really missed.
1: Yeah. I think that's indicative of fests in general. Like during the 90s, like, you know, you had your Hellfest up in New York and, you know, Crazy Fest from Initial Records in Louisville. And it's like all those same things, you know, exactly what Chuck was saying, where it was like, yeah, the bands were awesome and it gave everybody a reason to be there. But then it was always about the, you know, connections that you made with people where it's like, I just met you today and you are awesome and we yeah. like the same bands. And it's like that, you know. I just I really 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 hope that it's like uh you know kids that are coming up now uh, you know a place like Warp Tour. Obviously there's there's a much less sense of community there but I hope that in some way shape or form they're able to have those experiences that we had where it's like you know you just randomly run into a person and like hang out with them at Warp Tour all day and then you know your are best friends on Facebook or you know whatever you medium have a
0: common ground of music.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like I I just hope I hope that that exists in some way shape or form um, because obviously I know we all have such fond memories based off that fact
0: yeah and Ray I don't know if you know this one random story I'll, I'll make fun of myself and there's actually a video of this there was a year that Spitfire played and it was supposed to be their last show they played the big room it was I don't know 2000 kids were in there I mean it was some stupid amount of people and I knew a couple guys in the band um, the drummer his uh, girlfriend was at the school I went to. Anyway, they knew my favorite band was helmet. So they literally started they didn't tell me I'm on the side of the stage hanging and all of a sudden they start going into in the meantime. And the singer hands me the mic and I forgot every word.
1: Oh amazing.
0: <laughs> and so literally I like I do the chorus and the lead singer didn't know the lyrics either. So literally they played an instrumental version of in the meantime with me crowd surfing and screaming cuz I didn't know the words and literally like the video is so cringeworthy that I was like <laughs> at some point I'll bring it out and I'll rip it and put it up on YouTube but it's that's like the ma- whenever someone says Mac rock like my head instantly re- remembers the mic dropping <laughs> as I try to pick it up while 2000 kids are watching me screw up a song
1: so good <laughs>
0: See, I never had one of those experiences.
1: (laughs) I I think it's good that you didn't. (laughs) Yes,
2: seriously. You know what? The the year that Fugazi played... um, That was awesome. You know, and that that year my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, came up with me. And we were either going to the show or maybe going to the hotel. And uh, I I blew a tire. And... (laughs) We had, so I had to pull over to like the, Mac, or the uh, like a McDonald's parking lot, and uh, I don't think – I don't know. I didn't have a spare tire. I can't remember what happened, but anyways, I missed the show. So it was like my uh, one chance to see Fugazi, and I you know, totally – God said no, so I, I don't did know. Did you go to
0: his panel? Did you miss that?
2: I, I, probably, I don't think I did. I don't think I ever really went to a panel. Probably because of, weren't the label expos? There wasn't the label expo going Same on? Same time. And yeah. So I don't think I ever ever really went to a panel, which was too bad. I mean,
0: it was funny. He stressed. spoke in front of. I mean, there was two hundred fifty people in this like classroom, but he literally had this open conversation with people. It was one of the. I mean, I, you know, it's just kind of funny that we're talking about him and his sort of bands supposedly sparking a lot of this genre. Rights of spring, embrace. I mean that. But it's just funny that he was so uh he's so smart in hearing him speak and and speaking like not with a mic and kids just yelling out stuff to him and him responding and uh, you know being that young and seeing that was uh just like okay, he knows what he's doing, he's done it, and you should probably. See, listen. I,
2: I, I wouldn't I would never I'm not I'm not the type of person that has like a lot of like punk rock heroes, but Ian Mackay you know every time i i read an interview or you know see a video i'm always like he is the smartest person in punk rock i know um and not not like like smart like i agree with he's he, just like very well thought out and things he says i agree with and and, and 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 you know i don't i don't really know him personally but i remember at deep elm when we were switching our distro to, to southern who carried Discord, John talked to, to, to Ian. He was very helpful. And I think at one point, we even sent him a bunch of records, and he sent us back like a postcard, you know, saying thank you, you know, blah, wow. blah, blah. I mean, it's just, you know, if, if, <laughs> for all you kids out there, if you want someone to look up to, I think, you know, Ian MacKay is definitely a great choice. You know, he's... Uh, I, I just really appreciate the things he says and the way he's obviously run you know, run that label and, and, you know, and run, run his bands over the years.
1: Yeah. I saw him, I saw him about two years ago. He did like a West coast spoken word tour. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he just, I mean, there was like 400 people packed in this like tiny room at a, uh, university of California at Irvine. And, um, it was just the it, it, same sort of experience. I imagine you had Tom at MacRock, where it's like, he just got up there, you know, he taught like I was, I was in the, in the front of the room just being like, okay, I pray to God that no kid asks him about straight edge because it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, and, of course, some kid's like, hey, what are your thoughts on modern straight edge? And it's <laughs> like, oh, God. And I mean, he, he, he handled himself, like, very appropriately. Um, but I was like, if I were him, I'd be like, shut up. I'm not talking to you. But, yeah, he's – I definitely think that he's a person that people should, uh, you know, look towards and reference and obviously sparking so many musical genres out of something that they just did because they were kids. Yeah. Um, And uh, sort of in conclusion from my end, and obviously if Tom has any additional questions, um, with the, you know, seeing – how you know warp tour and alternative press and a lot of these different um you know musical outlets have you know paid homage to you know emo and the bands that they've uh, that have come up in that era um, and kids are obviously becoming more aware of those bands you know um, Chuck where do you personally kind of see this headed um, not only as a person that obviously, you know, works in publicizing it, but then works as far as a label uh, as well. So like, you know, what what sort of trends do you see coming up within that? And um, if anything at all, or or avoiding the trends?
2: (laughs) That's such a tough question. Um, I, I don't even know. You know, sometimes I feel like I should just not concern myself with any of this stuff. I mean, obviously you have to be connected to it. You know, if you're running a PR company, you need to be connected to, to the things that are going on within the scene. But, you know, the way I, the way I run Bear Trap and the way, you know, we run Tiny Engines, you know, the, the only thing I can really be super concerned about is, do I believe in the the bands that I'm working with? Do I think they're worthy of a, a bigger audience? Do I think pe- more people should hear these bands? Um... And you know how how can I help help do that? I mean, how can I how can I get the word out there? And I think at the end of the day, you know, I mean, good good music really. Um, I mean, that's sort of the the bottom line. And I I can't necessarily you know uh, concern myself with other other factors like that. I mean, you know, obviously you have to keep up with social trends like Facebook and Twitter, and you know, stay on top of. Uh, of that sort of thing. And and obviously the whole social media thing is a big, you know, that, that seems to be pretty, pretty huge. But uh, even in the way I run bear trap, a lot of it's still like the old school way. Like if I, if I, uh, you know, if I, uh, if, if someone gives me a phone number, a lot of times I'll call them and touch base with them that way. And I still work a lot of physical promos. You know, I know a lot of companies have sort of switched over to all digital, but I still think there's something to be said about, Sending somebody an actual record. I send people a lot of vinyl records. A lot of the bands I work with will give me vinyl promo copies, which I think is awesome because there's obviously people who love that sort of thing. And I don't know. It's just I think it's finding a way to connect with with other folks. And I don't know. Trends. Again, that's a hard question. I don't know if that really answered it for you.
1: No, no. I mean that makes sense. I, I think you hit on a good point where it's just like because obviously the whole point of uh, you know the site and the podcast is to you know highlight a musical genre that you know has changed over time and to <laughs> ultimate, daddy. Yeah. To, <laughs> to, yeah, that's fine. We we like we 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 welcome families. I'm holding I'm holding my own child in front of me right now. Um,
2: oh, is your child being quiet? Uh, yes. Yes. I guess, I
1: guess. Yes, he is. He he's six months old. He doesn't know how to talk yet, so it's good. Um, but yeah, as to focusing on the fact that ultimately we've, we're all intrinsically connected through music, and um, however people decide to do that these days, like you said, whether it's those you know Facebook, Twitter, whatever, or it is through places like alternative press and you know Warp Tour, ultimately that people have that connection and realize that there is stuff that came before them as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned you know going to to Warp Tour and. You know, I think that's that's another thing that I think people are sort of missing out on the whole social media aspect. Sometimes I think people forget about going out to see a good show and connecting with people in in that respect. And I'm guilty of it too because I mean, well, number one, I'm I'm, you know almost 36, and you you know
1: you're you're practically dead.
2: (laughs) You just sort of feel awkward going to shows where you know you did miss the the Hope's Fall fall shows. shows. I I did miss the whole fall show. Um, But when you're like 15 years older than everybody in the room and they're kind of looking at you like, is this guy a narc or something? Um, It's just sort of weird. But I try and get out as much as I can. And, you know, I definitely know some kids out there that I see at every show. And um, but, yeah, just I think it's important for people to go out and obviously support the bands when they when they are able to get out on the road. Because touring is obviously it's really hard. You know, you don't. You you know, you don't make money, and you you live in crappy conditions, and you got to deal with broken bands and all sorts of weird stuff. So, people definitely need to get out and support the bands
0: in that
1: respect. Cool. Did you have anything else, Tom, that you wanted to uh, hit on? Chuck,
0: you're amazing. (laughs) Well, thanks.
2: For some reason, I didn't really I didn't know this was going to be like a um, a Chuck Bailey interview. I just thought I was, you know, we're just going to talk about shit, but no, it's cool, you know, I don't, I don't normally, like, talk about my history that much, so I'll just,
0: I'll just point to this podcast if anybody wants to know where I came from. Well, that's sort of the, the idea of this was, you know, these people that have kind of come in my life and raised life that I feel like have such, you know, impact on me and what I've, obviously the emo diaries and just, I think these stories are, I think, going to be interesting to hear, um for people that are coming up and listening to this genre and finding out the history. And I hope, I hope people get something out of it.
2: Yeah. it's funny. Cause I, every time it seemed like every time you guys would mentioned something, it would, it would make something in my brain click about some story I had. So, I mean, I'm sure we could probably sit here for hours and just bullshit about,
1: you know, oh, it, it, old that's, that, that's the hardest part about these, the, the medium of podcasting because it's just like, before you know it it's like we've been taught we've been online for an hour and 17 minutes and it's like are you fucking kidding me like that's a long time dude so
2: yeah and we've only talked about me so
1: well <laughs> cool, because t- tom and i will have plenty of time